Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Driven to Delight, delivering world-class customer experience the Mercedes-Benz way. And we've got Joseph A. Michelli on the line today. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's totally a pleasure to be with you. I love Mercedes. My dad bought a Mercedes. Uh, it was a diesel back in the day. I think it was a 240D, so that really dates me. Um <laughs> He loved or that dates car. Your dad. Yeah, anyway, your dad. <laughs> exactly. He loved that car. He loved that car. Do you think? Uh, because this book is about how how Mercedes uh, became like delivering a world class customer experience. Do you think back in the 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 sixties and seventies, uh, Mercedes wasn't doing that, or they were? They weren't doing it to the level that they're doing it now. I don't think they were doing it. I think the marketplace required you to do that in the day. Certainly, Mercedes was in a pretty sweet spot in the German engineering design place in American automotive. So they had a product with great engineering, and they, the Japanese hadn't really come on board to compete against them. And, uh, you know, it's a product that led the way in a lot of companies in the 60s. That's the way it went down. And Later on, it wasn't just product; it was product plus service consistency. So the you know the McDonald's came into play, and they started giving us the same burger everywhere with predictable speed, and things changed. Hmm. Yeah, like everything, things change. In fact, didn't they write a book? Who moved the cheese? Yeah, exactly. And none of us want to actually deal with all of that moving of cheese, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's that is what business is like these days. It, it you got to be aware. Look, it change is going to happen. You have to give killer customer service so get over it and start doing it you can't hide from it or you're going to fail as a business you know i think some brands though have come to that slowly they fell so in love with their products and they're so good at the product side that it they, they came kicking and screaming into the notion that product alone isn't going to get you there forever consumers are asking for more on the service delivery but you know even service now is just a bit passe right i mean just getting it right and making it right for me in case something goes wrong that's not really where the cheese has moved if you will i mean right now customers are asking for that emotional connectivity in the experience that you brand people have been you know trying to make sure was communicated all along the marketing cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's like you, you make a promise, then you expect the whole organization to live up to that promise. If, if it's not, if you don't have people in the organization actually training and fulfilling and rewarding for, you know, that type of attitude, it doesn't matter how many brand promises you make. It doesn't matter how many billions of dollars you spend telling people. If the company itself is not authentically living that and doing that, then you're just throwing a lot of money away. I think it's even more important now, too, because in the 50s and 60s, I think you could make a promise uh, and not have to back it up. And I say that kind of, you know, a little bit with awareness that I was coming of age in some of those days. But I, I really I know that that you control the message. There were fewer channels to get the message out. Customers couldn't talk to each other beyond their small bubbles. And so what you ended up with was the ability to create impressions of brands, get people emotionally excited about brand connectivity. And even if the experience didn't live up to it, uh, they still owned that messaging cycle. And so now with all of the clutter of messaging and all the ability of people to tell whether or not the brand promise was lived or not and then tweet it and share it and you know post it, it 
it's changed. So it, lack of authenticity of the deliverable consistent with the message, lack of ability to have your consumers really say that's what your brand is in 140 characters. I mean, to me, that's why the experience has become increasingly important. Things have changed so fast that C-suite just are totally unaware of what's going on in the real world. And I know that's a harsh thing to say and slightly unfair, but really, I mean, look at if you're like 40, 50, 60, you've been in C-suite for 15, 20 years, you've been on that upper management level and suddenly tweeting comes along and Facebook and, and uh, email overload. I mean, a lot of those guys is like, eh. It's too much hassle. I'm not going to learn. I'm tired of learning. I, I don't want to evolve anymore. Do you think that's a bad attitude? Do you think it's time to step down? You know, I think there there are many uh, people in the C-suite who have exactly what you're talking about, most of whom I think have now been worn down by enough of the data to suggest your customers are churning if they're not getting emotional connectivity and the experience alongside with authentic marketing uh, and kind of edgier, uh, more relevant position marketing, particularly for millennials. I, I think they're getting it. Um, that doesn't mean that they personally are consumers of any of that technology or of their own experiences. <laughs> and so they... they they may be a little oblivious to just how bad some of their stuff is, even though they know it should be better. So, I mean, I think that, that I've certainly seen that. And if you look at one of my favorite studies is Forrester did a research study recently that said 92% of the C-suite is trying to have customer experience elevation as a strategic priority. It certainly hits their list. And a lot of them have it as their number one priority for differentiation. The reality is in the United States, customers are not getting the experience. I mean, if you just look at the American Consumer Satisfaction Index alone, we're at a near nine-year low on that index for customer satisfaction. And we're shooting for far more than satisfaction in those brands that are seeking engagement engagement, that are seeking loyalty, that are seeking referrals and advocacy. So, I mean, satisfaction is just table stakes, and we're not even hitting that mark, despite all these corporate execs claiming it to be an important priority for their organization. So it's, a, it's more of an execution gap, I think, than an awareness gap, really. Hmm. So is that what makes Mercedes special, is that they kind of got that concept, and over the last, you know, 10 years or what, however long it was... Um, have tried to execute and it's become permeated within the culture all the way from the basically the 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 lube jut dude who who's doing really greasy work all the way up to the c-suite level yeah you win the prize ding 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 i mean that is the answer um that's what's happened mercedes was I think a little quicker to the switch on this thing, on execution. I, I think the same genius that caused your dad's car to be so awesome on the design of the automotive engineering um, is, has been applied to the customer experience engineering. So that same dedication with a slight shift of focus. I mean, we can engineer a customer experience that drives the customer out of the door with a sense of delight, just like we used to engineer our focus only on product that delighted the consumer when they were in the seat. Um, so I think that's that's what they did. They obsessed about it and they locked on it. And it became such a high value priority and they got their metrics behind it and did all the other heavy lifting that they saw the benefits of it within about three years uh, in what is a, you know, a multi-year journey. And there was some foundational work. So your 10-year window is fair. I mean, they did a lot of foundational work, but the real customer experience obsession has been in the last three years. Now, you know, two things here. Is it a global shift or is it just in the North American market that Mercedes has, has done this? 
Well, th th let me talk about the global reality of Mercedes um, because I was asked to consult for Mercedes-Benz China a number of years ago, and I turned the gig down because this is kind of how it went. Uh, we'd like to put you on retainer in case we ever need a customer experience uh, expert. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's bad profit. I mean, I'm not going to take money from you in the possibility you'll need my services. Um, if I can't do something to add value, I don't really want your money now. You can come back to me if and when that day comes. But really what was happening in China and, you know, essentially what happened in China was they didn't have enough distribution points to get the first car out to people, right? So they had to get the first car to market to a consumer. They would worry about whether or not that consumer had loyalty and was interested in buying a second car if and only when they could get enough out on the first purchase. So, but 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 I guess to, the reason they actually solicited me was BMW had hired a customer experience consultant in case they ever needed one in that region of the world. So Mercedes hit me up and said, could you be our you know, on bench player in case we, in case Mercedes Benz goes into the market with it. Um, so, you know, I think developmentally, it just shows you in that market, it's not a time to worry about engagement or loyalty or advocacy. It's just time to get your distribution channel out there. Uh, the United States is such a mature market. So is Canada. And in fact, the CEO of uh, MBUSA, uh, I guess the the senior vice president of uh, of, the, of experience and service is now the CEO of Canada. So whatever happened in the book that I've written is now being imported up to Canada with Gareth Joyce up there, and and other parts of the world, not just North America, have taken off slices of what I think has been a learning lab in the United States on driving customer experience, given the maturity of the market and the need for loyalty. Okay, so this is a, a slightly biased-sounding question, but um, do you think because uh, Mercedes traditionally a, a German company is very systems-driven, um, that it was enables you to uh, implement these type of changes a little easier than a company that's less systems-driven? Oh, I think that it, it, it speeds up uh, the effectiveness of moving it through your organization because there is such a high priority on systems. The problem with any of this stuff is unless you get the hearts and minds of people, all the systems in the world will not work. I mean, truly, your leaders have to buy into it. The front line has to buy into it. There has to be inspiration and passion behind it. And so, you know, I, I think it's a combination of having great systems, but it was doing the foundational work to convince people that this was – a, mission critical, and B, purposeful. And so when they got those two things dialed up, you know, I, I, I just think it, it, it lends easily to, to speed to, uh, to execution. Let's talk a little bit about the book because let's face it, it's a delightful book. Sorry, couldn't help myself. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Even if it wasn't true, I like the way it sounded. It truly is. I mean, it, it's, uh, I hate to use this word, word because it's so misused, but it's classy, dude. It's classy. Well, that's good. I'm glad we were we were we we're trying to shoot for that. You know, this was not the the Chuck E. Cheese book, so I'm glad to hear that it made classy. So, yeah, it, it's um it's on brand. What can I say? I, and and just does some very very interesting stuff as far as design and and execution, printing. Uh, you know, it, you're you're hitting on all cylinders. Uh, if you don't mind me using that that honey. Well, no, let's stay with automotive yeah. metaphors all <laughs> exactly. we can, as long as it lasts. Uh, how should people read the book? Is it kind of a book that they'll get the best benefit reading front to back, or if they're really busy, um, can they jump into one chapter in particular? That type of thing. Yeah, I think I, I enter into the psyche of the reader and try to channel the reader when I write these things. So I'm always thinking about the fact that it's some dry cleaner in Poughkeepsie, right? You know, and so they're <laughs> they're trying to figure out how to get some value out of spending 20 bucks or so. And um, my goal, I think, always is to give enough detail of how Mercedes-Benz did it so that you could trace it 
but you're also not going to run an automotive brand and certainly not going to be a major world-class, you know, highly recognizable brand. And you don't have all the money that Mercedes-Benz does. So what are the key takeaways? And I think at the end of each chapter, we make sure that if you're skimming through the book and you find a section you really want to dive into, you read it in detail and understand some of the way the sausage is made. But by the end of it, at each chapter, we're really calling a kind of call a question to the reader, which is how can you apply this? And just a classic example of that. I mean, Mercedes-Benz goes to the pain of creating this massive brand immersion center and having employees of dealerships go to this immersion center to learn about brand and learn about the customer experience and on and on. You know, the average dry cleaner guy is not going to do that. So what can they do? They can and take some time with their employees who might have been working at the dry cleaner across the street and actually onboard them with some awareness about how we do things different here. What do we value? What do we want customers to feel? What do we want to be known for? What are some of the things you can be proud of with our products? And so I think we're trying to help a person extrapolate from a, a, maybe a slightly different example, but still be able to apply it in their own world. Yeah, you know, it's a very good point that you brought out at the end of every chapter. You've got these, once again, beautifully designed uh, section, which is basically full blue, which means that the ink goes right to the edge. So if you put the book on its side, you can actually thumb through and get to those sections very, very easily. So it, as far as the functionality as the book is concerned, you know, it's as close as you're going to get to an iPad experience with paper. Well, all I can tell you is that, you know, I know your pedigree. I know your background. I know you understand these nuances. I get no credit for any of this. I mean, <laughs> it is the talents at, uh, at McGraw-Hill who bring this to bear, and they do it in all of our books. You know, one of the one of the books I did a long time ago on Zappos was the first time oh, we used amazing. QR codes within the book. So literally, we hired a company that, you know, optimized the QR codes and tracked all that stuff, created the right landing page. But you could go along in your book with your mobile phone and hit your QR code and get, you know, green room enriched content. And, it, you know, some of that's just our kind of collective thinking about how do we market these books and how do we make them come to life out of the two dimensional world. Um, and given the realities, everybody's carrying their mobile phone right along with them right next to their book. So let's talk a little bit about uh, why you think this book needed to come out now. Ah, you know, because of what we talked about a little bit earlier, I mean, yeah. so many people are really skating toward a puck that is supposedly called customer experience, but they're whiffing when it comes to putting it in the net. So I think we're trying to, to help people understand that this is not an initiative. It's not a bunch of bolt-along initiatives throughout their organization that they can just send to that department and that department that doesn't connect with each other. You really have to have a master plan, and you have to have a multi-year focus, and you better tackle this like you would tackle any other enterprise-wide transformational effort. Customer experience isn't something you just do for a while in the year of the customer, right? And so I think we wanted to get that message across, and I think we also wanted to say it's doable. This is not hopeless because there are a lot of people with that aspiration and that actual result in the life of the customer that are feeling like, I don't get it. There's no there there. I can't. It's like pinning jello to the wall or something. It's not that way. If, if you approach it from a real systematic perspective of driving people, process, and technology, you can transform your culture. Your customers can become more fully engaged. Your profits can be what you want them to be. You can be a brand that doesn't churn and bleed out your customers, but actually gets your customers to become part of your sales team. I mean, it's it's doable. So I think that's why. That, plus it was time to do another book, and the publisher <laughs> put some heat on me. <laughs> do you feel that because of the emergence of the power of social media that the consumer is now in the driving seat and uh, companies have to be much more aware that customer service is actually an ROI um, vertical? 
Oh my gosh. It, you know, well said and, and may more people just hear just that phrase and believe it and then build their businesses around it. It's, it's voice and choice time, people. You know, customers have the voice. They, I mean, the only thing I sometimes wonder is that, you know, we're all life casting into social media. I'm not sure who's listening, but um, <laughs> I mean, I know we're all talking, uh, but I think a lot of people have a platform. I've come to believe now that every person I walk up to, I like, I look at a person and I think, how big is their audience? Like how many people do they influence with a tweet or a post or, you know, whatever, but everybody's got an audience today. And I, uh, I, I, you just don't know what you, you know, when you cross somebody, how big that audience is, you know, Southwest airlines did something really nice for my son and his uh, new bride on their way home, um, from their wedding. And, and, you know, he posted it, but then it got to me and I put it on my blog and it became pretty viral and, you know, don't cross my son, you know, and you don't know if it's my son. Um, so the same would be true with anybody who knows you, right? So I think that that awareness, we have to just take in. Everybody has an audience and a platform today. And uh, that didn't used to be the case, at least not a very substantial one. Well, one of the things that makes me grind my teeth when I'm sitting with a client, they say, well, you know, the reason we don't do this in customer service is we feel that uh, customers are going to abuse that. And it's like, oh, my God, that's the reason you're not doing it? Do you think companies still have that stupid attitude? Oh, God. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a guy who uh, owns a cycle company, and I can't even remember the name of it, but he does these workshops where he goes out into the audience with a, a basket of quarters and he says, take, take the, take quarters, you know, take quarters is what he says. And so, you know, he passes the back basket around the audience and it comes back and there's still a lot of quarters. Um, and you know, nobody takes all of the quarters. Uh, and his point is we treat customers sometimes like they're going to all take all of our quarters. And now if there were customers who violated whatever trust you extend to them in a relationship, please manage those customers, get them out of your business. I mean, we're not in business to lose money to bad customers, but we, we're in business to create customers. And the only way you're going to do that is to give a, an element of trust in the first iteration of the relationship. And until they violate it, it continues to build on each other. And I think that's kind of an awareness I'm starting to get more and more as a brand, we have to extend behaviors that drive trust. And if we do that, most of the people will reciprocate. And the ones that don't, we can move on to another brand. Yeah. You know, and I think there, there's a big disconnect happening where um, people that are, are really nice and aren't pushy and, and uh, aren't going to take advantage very rarely ask for the things that you desperately want them to get. Right. Because they're too shy about it or they're too Canadian about it or whatever. Um, and then the only people that you kind of have to deal with are the obnoxious people because they've discovered in life if they're obnoxious and ask for everything, they seem to win from it. And, uh, you know, it's really about how to communicate to the people that you need to communicate to let them feel that don't feel guilty about asking for a benefit. If you don't ask, you're not going to get. You know, I work in, in Canada in the United States. I think it's a bigger problem in Canada. <laughs> oh, for sure. I, I mean, just try to be in nice. In the United States, people, you know, people tend to ask a lot about what they want, sometimes really unrealistic things, and it's our <laughs> job to kind of coach them to what is realistic. Yeah, and if yeah. they're not coachable, I think that's the point where you move them on. I know, for example, I, I wrote a book about the Ritz-Carlton years ago and worked with their leadership team. And, you know, their motto is, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. And the implicit message here is, is our people who serve you are ladies and gentlemen. And they serve people like you ladies and gentlemen. And if at some point in time, your behavior toward our people is not in, is not consistent with being a lady or gentleman, we will coach you and say, please comport to gentlemanly behavior. 
And in the absence of you doing that, they'll send you over to the Four Seasons. Because really, you know, you can't let your people be abused by customers. So you have to set a line there. But on the flip side, let's expect our customers to perform and behave appropriately and, and coach them when their expectations aren't realistic. And normally what I say to, you know, to businesses and services say, you know, this is what I can do, right? Not no. Um, this is what I can do. You know, I can do that for you for five times as much as you're wanting to pay, uh, or I can do this, but not that kind of message. And uh, I think most people in service just, you know, they appreciate a service professional who's attempting to serve them however they can within the context of that business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is attitude. You're, you're, you know, you got to hire for attitude. I remember way back in the day, I was very young, and I uh, worked at a big hotel, and uh, I was a busboy in the banquet department. And uh, every Sunday they had this massive brunch in this fancy hotel, and I was running around like usual, working way too hard. And uh, this table called me over, and I said, yes, can I help you? That's not my job, but I said, if I'm called over, I came over, and she said, uh, do you think I could get some strawberries? And I said, absolutely no problem. Hang on a second. I went to the kitchen. I asked, Chef, where's the strawberries? A customer wants some. He says, in a box over there. Got the strawberries, put a bunch of them in a bowl, took them out, and here, here's some strawberries. Thank you, bye, and walked away. That wasn't even my table, let alone my job. Do you think that that's more of a rare attitude to actually do something that's not your job because the customer needs it done now? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I just did a blog recently as the things you should never say to a customer that's among them. No is one of them. And not my job is obviously an extension and, and one I, I posted in that blog. But, you know, I think that finding people with otherness is a key to successful service uh, professional organizations. And that doesn't mean you can't inspire people to the height of their otherness and keep them focused on purpose and how we're really not in this business to serve ourselves. Um, if we serve others well, we will be served. It's kind of a motto of mine that service serves us. So if we can figure out how to serve someone else, we are then served. If we obsess about making sure that everything's great for us, we probably don't have a lot of utility in the world and our days are numbered, right? So um, yeah, I, I think that finding those people and innate talent for that is pretty important. Developing that talent with service skill training is also important. But if, you know, if, if all else fails, I think you still have to try to nudge people in the direction of solving a problem for another human being or being replaceable. Mm -hmm. I like that term, being replaceable. I think there's a lot of uh, attitude right now where, look, I've worked for this company for X amount of years, so I'm untouchable. And it's like, no, that's not the, it's not the reality at all. We sold at Mercedes this notion of delighting customers. And the message was, how many customers do you have in a course of a day, internal or external? And how many of them are you willing not to delight? I mean, what would be the right number? Is that uh, 12 people you don't want to delight today? I mean, it, it sounds a little you know, obnoxious, but it, at some level, that's your opportunity. It's your war zone. How many people can you go out there and attempt to delight today? And if you did, how valuable would you be to this organization? Well, it's almost like, you know, all of them. You know, every customer experience that you have, regardless if it's answering the phone or if you run into somebody that looks confused on the sidewalk that's near in the neighborhood and isn't even interested in a Mercedes car but is looking for the grocery store, if you're being truly a great service person, it shouldn't stop when you walk off the lot. It's like, oh, yeah, well, it's over there and da-da-da. But if you walk two blocks over, they have a much better price on apples. 
Amen. Oh, amen. And and you know, but that that's that's the psychology that leaders need to drive in an organization. Explain why that has value in the market today. How that's a competitive advantage over the brand that has the same number of people but doesn't have that same attitude of service and execution against the attitude. I mean, that's that's what really was a large part of what happened at Mercedes, and I think it's what happens at Zappos or Ritz Carlton or Starbucks or any of the brands that I write about. They it happens more there than it does at their competition. Well, let's, you know, because you have, you know, written about so much of this stuff, have you seen a pattern uh, because, you know, driven from the top, how is that pattern perceived in an organization or, or how can people duplicate that if they are a leader? Okay, you as the leader, the, the C-suite or the owner of the organization say, okay, we're going to do X. How do I execute for me making that decision? Well, you know, obviously, I read a lot to CEOs, and so I just did a big old, uh, a big old manifesto, a change manifesto for uh, CEOs, and and wrote just about how this initiatives really need to be driven from the top, and because without it, it's so much harder for people down below to get the leverage to move the entire enterprise. Uh, but then, guess what? I also write to the middle levels and say, in case your CEO <laughs> is not <laughs> supporting this, you know, you can't give up. I mean, you have to continue to swing for the the fences on this thing. And you know, at some point, either it's an exercise in futilities, and all those singles and doubles didn't get anybody around to home, or you know, or you're getting some traction, and slowly but surely, you'll get enough people, you'll hit a tipping point, and who knows, the C-suite might be overthrown. Um, so, so I kind of hit, hedge my bets on that. And even if your leadership doesn't happen and you have to go somewhere else, you develop all the skills and talents. And if you spread those seeds onto a more fertile ground in another organization, you, you've developed something that's worthy of, of, of promotability and really imp improving the workplace. So, you know, I guess at some fundamental level, I, I believe that it, this is a C-suite agenda but in the event they don't do it, we still have the power to do something in the next customer. And, and, you know, my mantra is every customer, every time, no excuses. That's pretty much it. Every customer, every time, no excuses. Mm. And that, that should be the, but that should be the C-Suite's mantra as well, is in the sense that how can we as C-Suite delight customers today? Well, you could go out there, get off, get out of the C-Suite room and go down and start hanging out with people and showing your support and actually, you know, rolling up your sleeves and doing stuff. And a lot of people says, yeah, but that's not my job. And he says, well, if you don't think that's your job, then you're fired. Amen. And, and you know, the formula we have in, in Driven to Lead is uh, is a lot or Driven to Light is uh, is to lead at all levels of the organization. And so lead, we stand, you know, it's an acronym for listen, empathize, add value and delight. So, you know, that applies to the C-suite as much as it does to the front line. So, you know, are you listening to your people? Are you not only listening to understand intellectually as opposed to respond, which is the way a lot of leaders listen, right? I'm listening enough to be able to come up with a cogent response. But do I listen to understand? And then once I get past the listening for understanding, do I connect with you as a human? Human being, do I make an, a, a genuine, authentic, emotional connection with you? Uh, hopefully, somewhat personal to you. Um, and then, do I add value to your life? I mean, I think there are leaders who are just sucking up, uh, you know, oxygen and exchanging it for carbon dioxide. So, um, I think it's important that I, every single day that I'm in the life of someone who I'm trying to influence, I am serving them and adding value to their life. And then the additional piece is, what's that extra little thing I can do to show that you matter? that show that I appreciate you, that I value you. Um, and just it's a small thing, but but often it's as simple as 
being excited uh, to see them the next day, right? Or encourage somebody to, that you're eager to serve them again. So, I mean, we, we talk about that from a leadership perspective, but we also try to, you know, in this book, at least in the Mercedes-Benz journey, really worked on creating that commitment to listening, empathizing, adding value, and delighting. Okay. You obviously have done, you know, lots of books and lots of research on this particular subject. So when you were putting this particular book together, what was your aha moment or something you already knew was a reality uh, just totally crystallized for you? Well, there, there are two things. One is something I didn't know. I, I thought, you know, I've worked with Ritz-Carlton, and a lot of luxury brands are pretty pretentious uh, in terms of the leadership. I don't mean anything bad about it. It's just that they have high equity, and they are slow to move, and, you know, everybody's wearing three-piece suits from Armani. Um, Mercedes went that way. It was a pretty jeans and casual environment, and they had a lot of really progressive thinkers within the U.S. organization. So that was kind of an interesting, unexpected thing. As far as the aha that crystallized for me is that it's not always about just doing a second iteration of something. Sometimes you just have to take the best practices, break the thing down, and start all over again. So at Mercedes, a classic example of this is that it, it came to be known that you know, across the organization, these are dealership employees not owned by Mercedes-Benz. They're owned by uh, you know Bob's, um, Bob's Mercedes-Benz of Canada. And, um, and how do you then how do you get those people to experience the brand and connect to customers? It was determined that about 60% of these people had never spent a significant amount of time behind a Mercedes-Benz car. So imagine the, you know, the comptroller at a dealership or, you know, the person who does payroll at a dealership, he or she may have never uh, spent any significant amount of time in the car, even though they go into a building every day that says Mercedes-Benz. Um, so, the first initiative was to make sure everybody got to drive cars multiple days at home. It was called Dash, Drive a Star Home. And so just a fleet of cars went out across the United States. All the dealership personnel got to take them home, drive it home, experience it, enjoy the car. It was fabulous. They loved the car. I think they probably softened their attitude about customers who could afford them because I think some of the folks in the dealership were just thinking, man, these people have a lot more money than brains. Why would anybody spend this much money on a car? You know, I'm, I think there was some of that mindset because they were unlike them. They weren't driving them, obviously. They, they didn't own one, let alone drive one. And so we worked through that. And, and, and a lot of brands, what you do in year 2.0 is just kind of make that program double, maybe spend twice as much time behind the wheel of the car, like 2.0. But Mercedes just blew it up. They said the experiential element was important, but we needed to do more than that. So now they do send people to the brand immersion center in Vance, Alabama, instead of sending the cars to the dealership. These dealership employees go to Vance, Alabama. They see the cars getting built there. They're put on uh, a, they're put in AMG performance vehicles with helmets on test tracks, banked tracks to, to see the high-end performance elements of the vehicles. They're put on off-road tracks to experience the amazing SUVs that can do things that you'd never hope to ever encounter in the course of your driving life. And, and, they, and they, in addition to that, saturate them into the history, the safety features, and also what we mean to be driven to listen, empathize, add value, and delight. And so I just think that's crazy because lots of brands would just make a 20% improvement instead of strip down the original program and pull out the experiential success and then build a whole different kind of program for year two. You think that's more long-term thinking approach to the business though? Because if you can get the whole organization to be that way and kind of think that way, anybody that's a new hire will just be inundated with people that are just frothing at their mouth about the product. Amen. I, I think it is. But but it's still a boldness, right? Because in some ways, 
if it worked for you last year, 20% more will work 20% better. I think it's a willingness to say what made that successful, and we don't have to do that again. Let's strip out the best and make something even more creative. Um, and I think creativity is a key element to all business success. Certainly in your world of marketing, um, it's so critical, but it's also critical in customer experience delivery and culture building. Well, I think also um, one of the key words is empowerment and empowerment of the people that are frontline or would ever run into a customer. Um, you know, the companies that have given people the authority to, to basically spend money uh, on behalf of the brand are very, very uh, agile with customer service, but also have the ability to really blow people away because of the speed of the result. Right, and and clearly at Zappos they have that authority. Zappos is a shoe company here in the United States, uh, part of the Amazon family. Uh, they give their you know their call center employees, who they call customer loyalty team members, that kind of authority to do things. Uh, Ritz Carlton gives up to two thousand dollars per day per guest for you know customer experience enhancement or service recovery. So I think you're, you're absolutely right. Brands that empower people cause their people to realize I've been entrusted by my brand. I want to extend that trust in the life of the customer. Well, plus it also makes that person uh, have a much better job. So they're happy about going in the morning and, and they think, God, I wonder who I'm going to blow away today. I mean, that's the type of thing empowerment does. It they, they become their own little boss. They have their own little system and they're looking for opportunities to spend that $2,000 because they get such a rush out of it. Yeah, and, and I think they, the goal, you know, they also educate people at the Ritz-Carlton. The goal is not to spend the 2000 The goal is to know you have the authority to do so without asking somebody. And then even more exciting is if you can do it with less. So the less you do it with, the better it is, both for the brand, but also because it speaks to your creativity. Because if I just hand you money, I can, I can surprise a lot of people. But if I can figure out what you really want, like the strawberries – um, and have the empower to go and get those strawberries for that guest, even though they're not your table, and to actually approach the chef. I mean, all of that is part and parcel, I think, to to making that connection with the customer. Yeah, that was like taking a maybe a two dollars worth of strawberries, maybe even less, and then giving it to somebody that has maybe an eight or nine dollar value. There was fifteen people at that table. That's yeah. a maybe ten or twenty or thirty thousand dollar advertising campaign right there. Oh, Everybody amen. in that room. Yeah. And lifetime value of all 15 of those customers, we could just cascade it out. It could be crazy. You know, one of the things, uh, speaking of the Ritz Carlton, there was a time where I talked to a guy who was looking at a site visit for his event and they asked him specifically, is there any preferences you have? And I think he had like, you know, some kind of odd Coke, uh, Coke free, caffeine free Coke or whatever. And it never showed up during his site visit, right? So he decided if they can't get that little detail right and they ask me my preference and they don't execute, then I'm not going to spend the quarter of a million dollars for this event, let alone have any future events of which I have budget uh, at the at the location. You know, one can of soda was probably a million dollar mistake, right? And and that we don't we don't know what the lost revenue is, but I, I think we have to assume in these day, this day and age, the customer the average customer value is what you you stand to lose if you don't execute good service delivery or service recovery. And I, I think it's a lot more dangerous these days because like we talked about earlier, we basically every customer has the ability to get on uh, multiple platforms for a cost of nothing and there's one thing that will motivate somebody is is feeling pissed off and say okay well you know what i i'm gonna let people know yelp is the one for me i seriously make decisions at restaurants based on people's reviews you know and i'm capable of ferreting through uh some haters uh but 
But there's just a general feeling you have. This place is either competent or not competent. I'm either going to die or I'm going to relish my meal. And uh, uh, once you make that decision, that's revenue that goes to somebody else. Yeah. And the thing with a restaurant is if a customer doesn't go to your restaurant that one particular time, you may not get that person back for six months or ever because they found a better solution or uh, had better customer service or whatever. And a lot of times it's nothing to do with the price. Yeah, absolutely. And, and most restaurants I know, that the biggest challenge uh, is getting that customer in the first time. Right. I mean, the reason customers don't go to your restaurant, they've never been to your restaurant. Uh, and so figuring out how to get them in is pretty important. And if you've already, you know, if you've got a, a you know, just a, a wake of, of people complaining about you that prevents people from wanting to jump across, then I, I think you're, you're stuck. Well, a lot of it's perception too. You know, when I work with uh, restaurants, one of the things that I always mention to them and everybody hates is, well, I think you should have a series of parties to celebrate the neighborhood you've, you've started in and give away a, a week's worth of free food. And they go, what? Are you crazy? They, no, we, when we open, we got to be making money. I said, no, no, no. That, then you're you're going to fail if that's your attitude because nobody knows you're here. Nobody knows what your service is like. Then nobody's been inside it. Why would they come in? They said, well, we got this great sign. We got the advertising. Nah, nobody cares. See, and I think that's the that's genius. I mean, the whole experiential marketing world is where I think more folks have to go. I can tell you one of the keys to Starbucks in its early iteration is they weren't advertising anywhere in a traditional advertising sense, but they were spending more on product sampling than they ever were on advertising. And the notion here is that, hey, why don't you try a sample of this? Or I'd love to share this with you message. And even if I didn't like it, I normally knew somebody who might like that flavor profile. And so I would go out there and tell somebody that I had this free thing that while it didn't fit me because I don't like coconut, I know you like coconut, so you might want to try it. It was just, it's so logical to me. And the same is true with seeding an environment in a new restaurant market. It, but so many people are so quick to want to make, you know, dollar for dollar, every dollar comes in, but you got to be smart about it. You know, you really do. Yeah. Well, it's either you have a short-term business or a long-term business. And, and you know, the, the, everybody asks, well, we're, we want to be a long-term business. Well, then you, you got to start thinking long-term. <laughs> well, I think that's why you've been a long-term in consultant in this space is because <laughs> you know how to help people create a long-term business. So it all works out. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the industry, the car industry in itself. I mean, um, not the best branding as as far as uh, industry as a whole, um, in, especially if you include the used car industry. Uh, why are, are why is the car industry so slow in 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 adapting uh, some of this new thinking and new philosophy? Is it because it's a a family run organization and 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 you know it could be a large organization, you know, many 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 dealerships in that family run uh, business, um, or is it that it's worked the old-fashioned way, like, oh, we'll just put some ads and people will come in, that they don't really think about evolving their a group of dealerships to be more cutting-edge and, and uh, evolving to... Wait, you know, I've read your blogs over the years, and I think at some point you wrote about maybe a Coca-Cola's view of the difference between impressions and expression. And, and I can tell you, I think they live in an impression mindset. I don't even know if they've figured out that TiVo's around because, I mean, these people spend an inordinate amount of money on television advertising. That's I mean, ridiculous. it just is a crazy – I have in my market – I have a guy who's on TV every time I turn around and he's yelling at people and he's telling about how huge his – I'm like, wow, that is so 1970s. I mean I, I don't even I, – I expect the Brady Bunch to come out any moment uh, right after him. But, but I think 
what has happened for me anyway is there's increasingly a, an awareness now within the industry that we better be much more savvy in our social. We better be much more savvy in the way we provide product and content out into the marketplace because people, I mean, the new generation buyer really isn't only going into a dealership to test drive the car. And if they could do that virtually, they probably would. I mean, they know more about the products than we ever did back in the day when we'd read a brochure in the dealership. And they expect to be in the dealership for an hour or less to, to close the deal. And I think you're seeing a slow migration to more online strategy in the marketing space. Um, and then my chief complaint is if you spend all that money on advertising, you're yelling at people to come to you and then they show up and you haven't spent that much money on training your people how to engage and convert, um, then you're really in a world of hurt. And so I wish that they would take more money, put it in the, the digital space. And then I'd also like to see them spend more money in the service experience delivery so that uh, it doesn't fail all that screaming. I think it goes back to, to, you know, dealers have to buy this book, read it, and then understand it, it's a holistic thing. It's not just, oh, we're going to push our call center this week and get 50 more uh, leads or 50 more appointments for our sales guys because your sales guys aren't up to speed with how to close efficiently or how to not try to close all the time and, and build relationships. And and then the service department is, is not firing at all cylinders or there's a disconnect there. On Wednesdays, they get great service. On Thursdays, they get lousy service. Where yeah. Why is that? So it's you got to look at it is at, and this is expensive. You've got to look at it on a holistic thing. So let's, you know, any business person that's listening, you've got to look at it as the big picture and not from your seat, from the customer's angle. It's like if you're a customer, if you walk into the office, pretend you're a customer, and people have a really hard time to say, walk into the office, what's the first thing that pisses you off? Not what's right. the first thing that delights you. That's easy. It's, you know, what, oh, the carpet looks like crap, or I don't like the way the door works, or the parking in this area is lousy. Discover what those things are and then fix it. And then right. slowly, slowly, slowly move from there. And it's a, it takes years and years and years to perfect it. And I think there's too many people out there that say, look, let's just throw some money, make it disappear or make, you know, make us better. And the person that's doing that for them is basically ripping them off because they should really be going to this guy says, look, it can't be fixed by, by doing a fancy campaign. It can't be fixed by doing better social media. We have to go in and we have to be spending one, two, three years. So if you're willing to hire my company for three years to come in here every week for an hour and sit down with you and all your people on an ongoing basis, you're never going to change. You're going to become less and less relevant. And eventually you're going to close your doors. And and to your point, Bob, I mean, the, the work that gets done in that journey of those years is things like mapping the entire customer journey, looking for their pain points along that journey, removing those pain points, figuring out how to transition across the gaps where customers get lost between sales to service or your incentives, you know, allow the salesperson to make their money and then forget about the customer, whether they fall into a black hole instead of warm handoffs into the service department. Why don't you make the incentive based on their ability to, you know, not only sell, but also their ability to get the customer to the next 
next part of the customer's journey. Um, then how do you create listening points at the right times during the customer journey so you're getting real-time feedback from the customer about how you're delivering the experience? How about using the feedback from those customers to affect the variable compensation of uh, employees across the channel so they understand they're not getting paid just for selling, they're getting paid for selling and delighting customers. And if you can't do both, then you know, you're not going to enjoy the same levels of profitability. And the dealers are being affected by that as well. In the United States, the margin call, there's much more mo money on the margin now for, for performance-based uh, success in customer experience. So you got to do all of that. And if you line up your incentives and you understand your customers and you ask them things at the right time, and then you learn from what your customers tell you and you modify your experience, you win. This is an easy, you know, it's not easy, but it's certainly a doable win. And many brands like Mercedes are figuring it out. We've been talking about the book, Driven to Delight, Delivering World-Class Customer Experience, the Mercedes-Benz Way. Joseph, before we go, what's one thing that people can do to create a better customer service or improve their business? I think you have to have a really clear vision of what you think you want your experience to be. I think you have to help define what you want people to feel. So it's defining the emotional experience you want people to have. I think it's selling it to your people that we are going to take this hill. And, and then this hard one here is allowing your people to say, here's some things we have to give up. If you really want that boss, then we got to stop doing some of this stuff. And so give them an opportunity to define some of the things they would have to give up in order for you to have what you want, which is the ultimate customer experience. So get the book. It's awesome. I mean, it's 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 a great book just to flip through and look at. It's uh, it's a fun read. It's very very well done. Some great stories in here. Uh, Joseph, awesome. Hey Bob, keep up the the good work. Some of us out here are you know we're stalking you online to to read everything you have to say. So <laughs> so keep sharing. All right. All right. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week. Music.